from 102.3 WHIV in New Orleans and broadcasting around the world at whivfm.org. This is Health is a Human Right radio show. Protecting people like yourself I have some news for you We're here to defend wealth I have some news for you We're here to defend wealth Tra-la-la-la A public service announcement with guitar. Hey ho, let's go. This is 102.3 WHIVLPFM. This is No Matters. Health is a human right. My name is Mark Allendary. Such a pleasure to be here. 102.3 WHIV is New Orleans' only community radio station that is dedicated to human rights and social justice. All of our hosts and DJs are volunteers, and we are able to provide quality programming with your support. That's right, you. So please become a member of WHIV by setting up monthly donations of any amount that you wish, and that could be one, five, ten dollars per month, whatever. You can do to help, or you can make a one-time donation to the station. All donations to WHIV are tax-deductible. We also have a new line of really cool and great-looking T-shirts and tank tops and just in time for the spring and, and all those sorts of groovy things. So go to WHIV.org. I'm sorry, it's W. <laughs> came up with that website. I should know it, right? WHIVFM.org and click store. Or donate. Thank you for supporting WHIV. We are not a radio station with a mission. We are a mission with a radio station. And all wars. One more quick announcement before we jump into things. 102.3 WHIV in collaboration with the Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, as well as in collaboration with the Southern Center for Health Equity, is proud to announce FNO, the Public Health Film Festival of New Orleans, which is going to be running from May 10th through May 12th. The festival will screen powerful feature-length and short documentaries intended to inform and educate audiences around a variety of topics while inspiring activism for health equality. Equity. The screenings will take place at Tulane University School of Public Health at 1440 Canal Street in New Orleans. Admission is free, but seating is limited. All attendees must RSVP to be guaranteed a seat. For more information, please go to f-no.org. That's f-no.org for slash tickets, and you will find us there. So it is a great honor and a pleasure to have on uh, friends of uh, the show, uh, of the radio station uh, for that matter. And uh, it's great to have on uh, Unleash Local, which is a statewide economic justice campaign to give cities and parishes the freedom to raise their own minimum wage. 
More information about Unleash can be found at unleashlocal.org. We've got Unleash on for the first half hour. Second half hour, we are going to have a musical artist that's going to be playing here at Jazz Fest. So with that being said, it's a pleasure to have on uh, Janae Jameson, who's the program coordinator for Power Coalition for Equity and Justice. Peter Robbins-Brown, who's the communications director for Power Coalition for Equity and Justice. And Matt Morschbacher, who is an employee at a fast food industry. Uh, and we're here to essentially talk about the uh, House Bill 422, amongst many other things. Uh, and House Bill uh, 422 was backed by a host of labor and nonprofit groups comprising the uh, United uh, Group Unleashed Local Coalition. And this was actually State Representative Royce DuPlessis' bill, who's somebody who we've had on WHIV multiple times. And the bill would essentially allow parishes and municipalities to add paid leave requirements. It essentially won the backing of the New Orleans City Council, I think six out of seven. seven oh, all seven city council folks uh, 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 agreed with it. Of course, the mayor, I'm assuming, was strongly supportive of it as well and represents a fresh proposition on the minimum wage issue in Louisiana. I'm going to turn the mics over to you and, and, and maybe help us understand a bit about 422. Peter, you called me, so I guess we'll just start with you. Um, the, help us understand a bit about what uh, what State Rep. Uh, DePlices was trying to do with his bill and, and then maybe explain how even before – I mean it just got derailed before it even got started. Well, I guess let's talk about 422 and then what a leash uh, is all about. Yeah, so um, Louisiana is one of the five states that does not have a state minimum wage. Uh, so we revert to the federal rate of $7.25 an hour. Um, when we're in live rooms, I like to ask people to raise their hands and if they think they can live on uh, $7.25 an hour. Obviously, usually no hands go up. I think that our listening audience is probably in the same boat. Uh, there have been multiple efforts to raise the statewide minimum wage, including the past three years. The governor has tried to raise it to either eight fifty or this year he's trying to raise it to 9 uh, that's an admirable effort. We would, you know, like to see that, but I don't think it goes far enough for the working people of Louisiana. Um, one of the major problems that we find is that, like many other states, Louisiana has this statewide ban on uh, municipalities being able to set their own, a lot of their own rules. This actually goes beyond just minimum wage and uh, family and sick leave policies, but. Those are the two that we're most interested in. Can I just jump in yeah. real quickly and just explain that? Because I think it's such an important point that people just need to hear. So this is a, typically referred to as a, as a preemptive maneuver. Preemption. Yeah. Pre, preemption. Yeah. And so an example would be uh, New Orleans, I think two years ago, wanted to make plastic bags illegal in the city of New Orleans. And then uh, boop, all of a sudden the state passed a bill that said, no, New Orleans cannot make having – making it illegal to have plastic bags, let's say, at supermarkets. So these are these are political maneuvering that the state legislators utilize to help you know, control, choke, uh, dictate what happens with the city, right? Yeah, I mean, I would say that it's, um, it's just an, it's a modern uh, extension of, you know, Louisiana's historically top-down, heavy-handed political and economic system. Uh, obviously, that's rooted in a number of things. Racism, Racism being right at the top of yes, the list. Of course. Um, you know, it's it, you know, seven twenty-five. That's a slave wage. This is just sort of a you know, this is just a modern version of the system that we had hoped to have left behind. You know, generations ago. Um, so when we hear about these laws, 
you know, uh, now first of all, I think it's important to note that there are some preemption laws that probably some of us would would agree with. Um, we wouldn't want cities and parishes to be able to discriminate. You know, that's a there's some federal preemption involved in there. Um, but when we're talking about these economic issues or things like plastic bag bans or um, you know local smoking bans, these kinds of things, or sexuality education, s- absolutely. For, for me, that's one that's very important for what I do. Absolutely. So I think that it's become a tool um, over the past twenty years of, of oppression coming from the corporate sector through state legislators. Well, we're going to talk about that in a second because I actually highlighted that in the article. Yeah. So the article that we're going to refer to was an article that came out on uh, April fifth. Uh, and I have it here. I didn't pull it up in my notes. Uh, it was written by Sam Carlin, and it was at The Advocate, and it was called Should Locals Set Their Own Minimum Wage? A Fresh Idea Gets Rude Awakening in Louisiana Legislature. Yeah, so uh, in the Louisiana Legislature, the Labor Committee uh, in the House of Representatives is a anti-labor committee. Uh, this bill was written to go into the... Is, muni- but isn't that like follow like just federal, like they put the people who hate education in, in charge of education in the federal or the people who are anti-environmental in the EPA? I mean, these are, they, they talk about broken government, but it almost seems like the, the idea is to break government and then to point to it and say, Look, you see, it doesn't right, work. Right. So I, I, yeah, I didn't mean to derail. That's exact, no, that's exactly what it is. Um, it's well known in the state capital that if uh, you are in favor of things like raising the minimum wage, you should, if you're, especially if you're of a particular political party, you should raise your hand so that they can move you off of the labor committee. Uh, we wrote this bill to, it was written uh, to go into the municipal committee so that the, you know, we think it's a city parish issue. Um, it was one of the few bills that was referred out of the committee that it was originally referred into. There, there was a motion to move it. So, you know, you wonder why is this bill so scary that, you know, while they were reading hundreds of bills in on the first day of the legislature, that this was the one where uh, somebody decided to stand up and motion it into a different committee, into a particular committee that's known to be hostile to measures like this. Right. Seems like it might be scaring some people. Right. Um, well, I mean, it was clearly it was political. Absolutely. I mean, it was yeah. a, it, and it seems like this was a political maneuver that that actually occurred, and especially since you wrote the bill because you anticipated that this maneuver was I, I'm, I'm now I'm putting words let me let me let me ask this in the form of a question yeah. all right I, I'm not playing jeopardy either all right did you guys write this bill in in anticipation that there would be this potential political blockage that you did not want it to move into the labor committee so to a certain degree you kind of wrote it so that it would be appropriate for the municipality committee is that a fair? Yeah, I think there's a couple kind of ways to answer this. So, so Representative Duplessis, who when he ran for office, ran partially on this issue. So, you know, this is he did. He this came kind here of and in a, this, is, this can be if you don't know the details, it can be kind of an in the weeds issue. You know, preemption is a word most people don't understand. Even people who you know put a lot of work into this, that's why we call it a ban because that's really what preemption means. It's a ban. So Representative Duplessis took the lead on this, um, working with various organizations, uh, you know, in New Orleans and around the state that, you know, cared about this issue and have been working on this issue. And, yeah, one of the strategies was the statewide raise has not worked. It always gets thrown into this labor committee where it just goes to die immediately. Um, And we're, you know, taking a new approach. And uh, it's not so much that we wrote it to put it into the municipal committee. It's that. Representative Duplessis and, you know, the team of people who've been working on this, um, we just think this is a municipal issue. You know, this really, uh, yes, obviously these labor uh, standards are part of it, but it's it's about giving power to 
local officials. This law does not mandate a minimum wage increase. It does not mandate a uh, family and sick leave policy, uh, you know, for local. Uh, it just says we think that they should have the freedom to make these decisions for themselves. Uh, you know, living standards are different. Living working standards are different all over the state. Um, you know, I think certain places, maybe I would disagree with them, but they can make a viable argument to say that the minimum wage should be eight or nine dollars an hour. Again, I might disagree with them, but they can make a viable argument. You can't make that argument in New Orleans. You can't make that argument in Shreveport or Baton Rouge. Um, so this really is a municipal issue. So when you hear that it gets motioned into this labor committee, which is known to be hostile to these kinds of issues, that's obviously a political maneuver meant to kill the bill. But I think it also just shows how scared the sort of powers that be are about this approach. Um, because it's an approach that appeals to everybody across the political spectrum. You know, It's about economic justice, but it's also about uh, rolling back government overreach. Um, it's about, you know, living the values that many Louisianans, whether they live in New Orleans or elsewhere, have said that they don't want, um, you know, big government, quote unquote, dictating their lives to them. But that's what we do in this state. Um, so I think when you see that, that them jump out and make that motion, it shows that they're scared because they know that this is an issue that people want, that, that is, has support. Uh, the Louisiana survey just came out last week. 81% of people in the state are in favor of raising the minimum wage. Yeah, I, I was stunned by that. And I saw that 60% said that they were in favor of $15, $15 yeah. which I thought was phenomenal. And that, of course, speaks to why th- they're scared. So how does that work? Who who makes that? Just let, let's get super nerdy for a second, and then we'll move over to Ms. Janae. <clears throat> how does that work? Who makes the motion? Like, And who votes on it? How does, like, how does that procedural process work or is that too weedy in the weeds no i mean we can do i'll do a real quick i like to uh i yeah. like to tar and feather the guy who uh who yeah, did please. it in particular okay let's yes so we um, love naming names on yeah. whiv so name names so yeah so basically uh the republicans in the state legislature as the bills were being read in they looked around they saw that a bunch of people who would probably be friendly to this measure were out getting lunch or something they, uh, Blake Miguez, who is a gun nut out of Erath, uh, Louisiana, is single-handedly deciding that he should uh, determine minimum wage rates for everybody across the state. He was um, he put the motion in to move it to the Labor Committee, where he's the vice chairman and will go out of his way to kill it. Uh, he has his own anti-preemption bill. The funniest, not funniest, saddest slash funniest part of this, he has an anti-preemption bill about gun, guns. local control yeah, of guns. I, re- I think I remember so that. So he's trying to kill one preemption, anti-preemption yes. bill while trying to pass another, yeah, which yeah, yeah, just, yeah. you know, makes the hypocrisy super blatant. Right. Um, the word that we hear is that the, he was essentially put up to it by uh, the LRA, the Louisiana Restaurant Association. Um, there are other powerful interests that are against this, but that seems they seem to be driving the narrative, uh, trying to kill this bill. And so, yeah, that's where we are. Um, you know, but this is, you know, this bill is is central to Unleash Local, but this is a long-term power-building movement. Whatever happens with this bill, we're going to be back next year. Yes, we're going to be back every, you know, there's statewide is, elections. Is he, I know that 40% of the of the, of the the legislators being termed out this year. Is he yeah. one of the folks that's going to be termed out? No, he'll be, he'll still be there, uh, as will, you know, some others. I mean, I don't know. Right. You know, it's tough to say at this point how much the complexion of legislature is going to change, even with all those term-limited right. folks. right. 
Um, well, let me let me quote, and then I would love to hear f- from you, uh, Janae. But I, I do want to quote one of the quotes here uh, that goes along to what what Peter was just saying. And if you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is Noel Matters. My name is Mark Allendary. This is Health is a Human Right, and we have on Unleashed Local, uh, which is a uh, uh, a statewide economic justice campaign to give cities and parishes the freedom to raise their own minimum wage. And we're talking, in particularly, about House Bill 422. You can find more information about Unleash Local at unleashlocal.org. So one of the things that is in the article that we're actually talking about here that was published on The Advocate on April 15th um, was was kind of understated, but was like, of course, and that is business groups that oppose raising the minimum wage are also prolific donors to lawmakers' campaigns in the state, another factor influencing the debate. It was so like, oh, it was just kind of like, it was just this little throwaway sentence, and it should be very bolded and right out there because, as you said, Peter, that the LRA, the Louisiana Restaurants Association, was, of course, one of the groups that's going to uh, avoid or not want to participate in, in, a, uh, in a bill uh, uh, such as this. Uh, Janae, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to respond to all the things that we're talking about. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I just wanted to give a little information about our actual organization, the Power Coalition, yes. and how that actually relates to everything yes, that's please. going on. So basically, the Power Coalition, we're the civic engagement table for the state of Louisiana. And um, one of our main goals, we fight against those policies that hurt Louisiana families, and we increase voter participation and civic engagement by providing a support system for community activism and voice. So we really believe in giving voice to the people and shifting that power and one of our core principles is that intersectionality is mandatory in policy advocacy so it's clear that there is power in working in numbers and uh that's why the unleashed local coalition a various group uh, you know it's so important for this campaign, especially when you see a different demographic of people that are being affected. I may not have personally been affected by minimum wage or, you know, the fight for trying to obtain a a job by educational attainment, but someone within my family has been. Um, And we have to look at the facts. What we have to really focus on is that people throughout the state they're dying. People are starving. There's definitely, yeah, right. um, you know, a correlation with poverty, yes. with, um, you know, the prison pipeline. Of All of these things are related. And when we look at the state, um, one in four of black men and people of color they can't find a job. You know, one in 10 working black men cannot find a job to provide a substantial living. And that's despite educational attainment. And we have someone here who has educational attainment and is still, um, you know, trying to fight to find a job to provide him with a substantial living. And also children. When you look at the factors of the children, we have the second highest poverty rate within the country. 28% of our children are starving and they are dying. 20% of the population in total um, are at the poverty line or at below. And our beloved state of Louisiana is ranked number 49th in the country, highest in poverty. So, If you have people who are saying that, you know, um, this has been in effect for 20 years, it was there for a reason, well, that reason and obviously it being placed as a law is not working. So we have to focus on something else that would actually focus on the best interests of our people instead of a small corporate lobby group because lobbyist group because 
you know, our people are suffering. Yeah, I was going to say that I think the law is working, but it's just not working for the people. It's working for these lobbyist groups. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is the quintessential definition of how structural racism, especially in a state like Louisiana, works in that you just continually create policies uh, that will uh, not support the growth of different groups. Because if you allow people to stay impoverished, to stay hungry, to have difficult times finding jobs, though you're, n- you're not, you're not going to have time to fight against the establishment, take the time to learn about what's happening. You're still struggling to try to make, make ends meet. So I, I would say that these, these policies, and again, I'm going to say this because I'm constantly reminded and before any of the board of directors sends me a text, I'm going to say this now. The statements that are the, that are being spoken to today are, are mine and my own, and they do not reflect and see the nonprofit organization that is that holds the license, the FCC license for WHIV. They are certainly not reflective of anybody on the board of directors for uh, WHIV. These are my and my opinions alone. I think that these policies are being done purposely to continue to keep black and brown bodies impoverished, and that's that's the truth. And one of the things that I usually, when I give lectures nationally, I'll remind people, I, I, I quote the same statistics that you do, but then also am quick to add that 40% of children that grow up in New Orleans uh, 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 suffer from food insecurity as well, and we, you know, being the richest country uh, in in the world, you mentioned uh, Matt. So I guess we'll let's just bring in Matt. Matt is Hello. a representative of the uh, fast food industry, and so Matt, do you want to quickly tell us your story? Yeah. So uh, my story is that I was, uh, you know, pretty well off and working in a um, a, a much better paying job than uh, I currently am now. But uh, when funding runs out and when you're doing one job and you got to go find another job, it can be difficult in Louisiana if you don't have, uh, I don't know, s- certain connections or uh, certain you're, you're not you're not fed into the um, into the uh, f- or feeding off the gravy train, so to speak. Um, not that one exists particularly in Louisiana, but uh, you know it does help to know a few people in order to get uh, sure. get a position here or there. Um, so anyway, when it re- when you run out of money, what do you got to do? You got to go find yourself a job. Otherwise, you're out on the streets. And uh, one of the only jobs around that I was able to find after applying for months and months was working in the fast food industry. So it's been an eye-opening experience uh, working in the fast food industry, whereby your wages are well below $10 an hour. And uh, after hearing about this campaign, I thought it was uh, very pertinent to to come over to the station and uh, help represent some of the folks who are essentially voiceless in this campaign. A lot of the folks that you won't hear from, you'll hear from a lot of the advocates, you'll hear a lot of arguments on one side or the other from the legislators. Um, but the actual people on the ground who are working in these jobs, they're, uh, they're, they're often not, not heard from and only seen, only seen when, when they're, uh, when they're serving you at the, your local restaurant, if we can call them restaurants. Right. Now, what would happen? Uh, I know that that um, that I have heard of attempts at unionization uh, and and uh, and or just being active, especially uh, in the fast food industry, can sometimes lead to 
job uh, losses of jobs, uh, people were being fired. You know, if they tend to protest and they or what have you, uh, and people find out about it, is that that way here in in Louisiana as well, or is that something that's a threat? The instances that you talk about with regards to unionization in the workplace, um, I've heard of such arguments. I mean, if you look at a book like Fast Food Nation, which t- catalogs all the you know, sort of uh, hostilities towards fast food workers along with, you know, the whole process of bringing food to the table. Um, You can learn more about the unionization process and some of the uh, higher-level fights against unionization that occurred in the past. Um, However, the people with I work don't have the energy to unionize. Yeah, I would imagine, of course. I mean, especially uh, if you've got several jobs or... Uh, you have multiple children and responsibilities and 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 again, this goes back to this is done intentionally isn 't it I mean that you know you put a heavy burden onto a community and they don 't have the energy to unionize and we know that you know and, and even in, in when I give medical lectures, I show the graphs of how the middle class has declined identically as unions continue to decline in America uh, as well, and people don't want the unions around. And, and, I, and I hear that people are fatigued, and, I, and, I, and my heart is broken for that. And so what you get is you get a lot of people who are working two, two jobs at minimum wage to try and support their family. You know, so you got people working 60 to 80 hours a week at minimum wage jobs. Um, luckily, some of the places that do pay minimum wage will give time and a half for overtime, so you're then making you know close to twelve dollars an hour, thirteen dollars an hour, and uh, that that does help once you're over forty hours a week. But you got to work that forty hours at minimum wage before you even start to reach any sort of overtime pay. Now, um, another point that she that the lady here with the Power Coalition was speaking to that I found interesting was um, that this is. This is a huge sector of the population. You know, we're talking about 40% of people who were uh, mal- with children who are malnourished. You're talking about their parents working in the, these jobs, a lot of these low-wage, um, minimum-wage jobs. And if you look at New Orleans across the, across the industry, it's service industry-based economy in New Orleans. And so what we have is a lot of low-wage workers um, trying to support these families, and we have huge inequality rates. What she was saying, 49th in the nation in poverty. If you look at inequality in in the United States, Louisiana is always at the top of the list. So you have on one side this legislation that is we're trying to advocate for that helps bring to a local level this issue of minimum wage and st- living wages. At the same time, you have lobbyists who are advocating at the Baton Rouge legislative level saying, you know what, what's this going to do? This is going to hurt my profit margins because all of a sudden these people want more money. But there is good evidence out there that if you increase wages, what you do is you increase quality of life for those people working in those low-wage jobs because they don't have to work so much. They can spend more time at home. They can, you know, delegate their 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 time and money towards sort of establishing themselves in a job that they actually care about. Because right now, the cycle of people that come in and out of fast food work or jobs, you're talking about people that stay one to three months at most because they recognize the reality of not being able to pay those bills and don't have that security that just 
10, 10 to $15 could provide. Of course. And, and we're all aware of the study that uh, was released last year that showed that something like more than 50% of Americans can't even sustain a $400 uh, emergency. So, Janae, as we kind of start wrapping up the conversation, can you help us understand that you guys have an event tonight? Uh, and if you can also talk to us maybe about what some of the, the next steps are. Um, and I would love to have you guys on again. So you guys will be hearing more from Unleash Local uh, because I think that the work that they're doing is incredibly important and it's really showing the hypocrisy of the lawmakers of Louisiana and that they fight for local, local, local. And it always seems to be local, local uh, control of this, local control of that, but it always seems to be local. They want the local when it's taking away rights, uh, uh, but not when it's to give people more rights. So Janae or Peter, whoever. Yeah, I'll just jump in really quick. So if you're interested in getting involved tonight, we do have an... Un- so Unleash Local has statewide chapters. Uh, you know, Unleash Shreveport, Unleash Alexandria, Unleash Baton Rouge, and Unleash New Orleans. If you're in New Orleans and you would like to get involved tonight at 6 p.m., so about a half hour from now, uh, 2022 St. Bernard. Uh, it's the community center building behind Corpus Christi Church at the corner of Galvez and St. Bernard Avenue. Uh, room 124. Uh, so if you want to join Unleash New Orleans, come into that. And then if you want to just learn about more about Unleash Local, um, you can go to unleashlocal.org. Uh, Power Coalition is a good way to get tapped in uh, at the local level. Step Up Louisiana is doing a lot of work. Um, we have local events. We have statewide events. Uh, we'd love to have you join us. This is a people power movement. This is a long-term movement building power from the bottom up to sort of tear down these top-down uh, power structures in Louisiana. And we need everybody to get involved, whether that's one hour of your time a month or if you have more than that. But we need the people to stand up and tell the state that this is not how we want to operate. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Peter Robbins-Brown, who's the Communications Director for the Power Power Coalition for Equity and Justice. Uh, Janae Jameson, who's the Program Coordinator for Power Coalition for Equity and Justice. And Matt, uh, who is an employee at a fast food uh, restaurant. Thank you for sharing with us your very touching story. And as as I told both Janae and and Peter, I would love to have you guys back on uh, so that we can talk more about the amazing work that you guys are doing. And we need to really make sure that 422 goes through. In fact, I'm going to, we're going to extend an invite to also representative Duplessis so he can come talk to us about that as well. Um, I'm going to, we're going to go to a quick musical break while we turn the, uh, turn the, uh, um, uh, the booth over uh, for our next guest. So thank you guys. And we'll be right back. Thank you. When I die, the earth still carry me Oh, and I die My mother still carry me Oh, when I die The mother still carry me When I'm already Just 
Let's go. This is 102.3 WHIV. And uh, that was such an amazing song. That was uh, Lydia Violet, uh, who is here in a house with us. And that was called uh, Claim My Limbs. And I think that uh, we were just having a great talk just now. And first of all, Lydia, welcome to New Orleans. Thank you. And it's great to have you here. It's great to have you on WHIV. I hope this is the first of many uh, appearances on WHIV. (laughs) Uh, we uh, and you were just telling us that you are you're originally from California, but are coming and starting to slowly move yeah. to New Orleans. Yeah, one of your musicians got me in, in my yes. heart, so now I'm spending a lot more time here. It's great to have you and Scott <laughs> again. As I was just saying, I hope to have you back on air uh, multiple times uh, as well. So, Lydia, I, you know, as I was saying to you, um, I, I I think that the work that you do is really amazing, uh, and I had an opportunity to kind of click through your website when y'all first 
reached out to me and then mm-hmm. I clicked through again last night as I was getting ready for today. So you just have a great story. It's super inspirational. So first of all, let's just say more information about Lydia can be found at LydiaFiddle.com. Yeah, LydiaFiddle.com is the music. And that's the music. And we're going to talk about the music and medicine part in just a quick second. But mm-hmm. also just before I forget, want to plug, you do have a show coming up tonight, yeah, tonight at the Hi-Ho at, at 10, 10 o'clock, yeah. at 10 p.m. So we're, we're going to plug that a few times as well. And then the, the song that was just played was off of your CD called Already free mm-hmm. and again what we just heard was claim my limbs so maybe let's start with that I mean that was an inspirational song so let's talk about the inspiration yeah I am um, so I have a wonderful and passionate mother and about five and a half years ago she came down with an aggressive form of brain cancer and I had four months with her until we midwifed her into the mystery and you know uh, music like a lot of musicians is the way that I try and reconcile hardship when it comes in my life. And that was definitely the hardest thing I've ever been through. I kind of relate to it as like when my mother died, I died, which I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. And, um, music, you know, I was looking for songs to sing, to heal. And, um, my friend sent me these two lines from Khalil Gibran that say, and when the earth has claimed my limbs, then shall I truly dance. So then out of that unfurled this whole song called Claim My Limbs that I wrote to help me reconcile the passing of my mom at, you know, relatively young age. She was 63 at the time. And um, it makes sense that it came out as like a swamp stomp gospel song. Cause she was also very Christian and a passionate Christian. So that song, every time I sing it now, it's healing for me to sing it. It energizes me. So to be able to take something so difficult and turn it into something energizing, I mean, just right there is one of the pathways that I think music has shown me it can forge my own resilience in my life. Yeah, it really it really can. And and I imagine that when you play the song that there's an energy that is transferred to the audience that gets transferred back to you. And so something that was because it's like you said, it's it is an energetic song mm-hmm. and uh, that as you're performing it and then you're feeding off the energy uh, back again that's probably not what the intent of the song originally was but there was that kind of like an unexpected gift that the song yeah, has I essentially mean, given you so many lineages of roots music in this country are you know like there's that phrase it gives us life it gives you life um I think it's because people were singing it literally to stay alive and so I think being inspired by that lineage of music, um, there's a wisdom there of how to take something that could push you down and have you give up, and how do you transform it into something that gives you life. And uh, I think that that is the profound wisdom and why I can't help but keep coming back to American Roots music, Black Roots music in the United States because of the depth of wisdom and resiliency that I experience in that tradition. Like Jazz Fest is coming up next week. Right. It's my first time going back in two years. I can tell you I am the most excited about finding my way back into the gospel tent. Well, yeah, the gospel tent is always oh. the, uh, yeah, that is <laughs> always the best. Because especially if it's any, you know, I'll, uh, 
I'll, I've been having a hard time with Jazz Fest personally, but sure. I'll just step away from that and just say, sure, sure. anytime I'm there, I'll always look to look for the, the, um, the whatever, whatever high school group. Sure. Right? Cause totally. when it, right? When it's the whatever, whatever high school gospel <laughs> singers, like, I am there because it is so passionate and just to see right. all these young people just sing their hearts out. It is, uh, I'm, I'm very inspired by gospel music. And so yeah, I, I, so I perked up when you said the gospel tent. Yeah. Uh, are, are you excited? That's pretty much where I, that's where you stay pretty much. Yeah. When I go there, yeah. <laughs> that's a smart thing to do too. Um, and, 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 uh, are, are there some bands that you're excited to go see while you're here at, at Jazz Fest or? Yeah. I mean, as far as main stage bands go, I'm excited to see Leon Bridges mm-hmm. and I'm only probably going to go to a day or two or Jazz Fest. I mean, you know, just living in this city, how much amazing music there is everywhere. Right. 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 And, you know, Jazz Fest is cool and it's kind of pricey. Yeah, so, no, I know. You know. It's, yeah, it is. I, I think um, probably most of the bands I'm stoked to see are outside of Jazz Fest playing as well. So I'll just be like walking up and down Frenchman like a lot sure, of people checking sure, out what's going on. Just to see what's happening. Yeah, Absolutely. Totally. So, all right. So let's hear a little bit about your story then. A sure. super interesting story. A Iranian-American. Yep. So salam chetori. Merci. <laughs> Merci. How, yeah. did, how, did, uh, how did you end up in Berkeley? So I grew up in New Jersey, actually. There we go. Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, and both my parents are from Iran. And so I was the first generation born sure. here. Both my parents are from Morocco. Oh, yeah. So I'm first generation American as well. Yeah. And but the family, like beyond my parents, were in Los Angeles. And so when I went to college, <laughs> they moved back to California. Of course. And then I moved back to California to be closer to them. And... um you know, I played violin my whole life. I sang my whole life, but I mostly played classical as a kid. But my father loved blues music and introduced me to B.B. King and like all those folks. And then um, when I was in grad school in California, I had a class with someone named Joanna Macy, who became a pretty profound teacher in my life. And she spoke to, in this first class, our pain for the world unacknowledged despair that we could be carrying around what is happening in our world and our communities and as soon as she started talking about that my ears kind of perked up and it was like all the empathic pain I'd ever felt on behalf of people who are suffering was validated and I wasn't too sensitive anymore or you know any of those things that we can be labeled when we like care about what's happening and it was normalized And so what happened over the last decade was I ended up kind of training in her lineage and doing a lot of teaching and workshops on how we can metabolize senses of paralysis or panic around what's happening in our world or in the community. And um, that was through workshop group exercises. But then because I'm a musician, I started being informed by the way that has carried through in music traditions as well. And that music has been a major way and might be the last healthy way on a mass level that we self-soothe when we're troubled. And um, now what Music is Medicine Project is, is just those two things coming together. So and so, what were you going to graduate school in or yeah, what was? I went to a very liberal school in uh, 
San Francisco called the California Institute of Integral Studies. So, okay. So, cause I was, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. Cause yeah. that really gave rise. So when I read that in your bio, it, it and then I, and I'm sorry, I, I should have written down the name of the person who inspired you. I That's okay. Yeah. That Joanna way, Macy. Joanna yeah. Macy. You, you write about her as a real integral, like it was a, it was a pivoting point. Yeah for you and it seemed like a lot of things happened as a result of that and then I went back to try to find what school you were at and then so and I realized I had not that was not a discipline uh help me understand the school it's I guess that's what well, I'm trying to ask a, you it's a mostly graduate program school there is in an spirituality or, or it's not all, there's a lot of psychology programs and then there's some religion and spirituality programs ecological programs anthropological so my my master's is in philosophy and religion with an emphasis in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness. I think basically what my program was, was instead of kind of studying really abstract form of philosophies, it was asking, what is happening on planet Earth right now? How did we get here? And how can we understand the promise and peril of being a human being and the way that we can apply the original definition of philosophy, which is a love of wisdom, how can we apply that to better ourselves and to better understand what's happening in the world and to hopefully become helpful people on the planet? You know? is, is that uh, – do you mind just maybe uh, taking a crack at answering each one of those questions in like a sentence or sure. two? I would, just because I say. I, yeah, you said, <laughs> how, did, how did we get here? Oh. Sure. I mean, because I think that what you're talking about is, I mean, largely the reason why I started this radio station was because I, I, I think that we're here because there is a gross lack of social, economic, environmental, racial justice, not sure. only in our country, but I think globally as well, especially yeah. when we look at the environment. But I, you know, I also follow uh, international conflicts and, and national conflicts around the world as well. I mean, there's a horrible one happening in the Democratic Republic of the Congo where there's a huge Ebola outbreak simultaneously. Sure. Yeah. And you have uh, some of these uh, militants who are going into these Ebola hospitals and destroying these Ebola hospitals, therefore allowing for more right. chaos to run rampant, to allow more of Ebola, which is one of the most uh, pathogenic and infectious uh, um, entities uh, known to, to humans. And I say this as an infectious disease doctor and somebody who's done a lot of Ebola right. work. So I just, so you, you, you encapsulated your educational program so, so well. <laughs> I just was wondering if you can maybe help us. I would just love to pick your brain just to get to some of those, some of those answers. Sure. I mean, even just taking the circumstance that you just brought up, we could easily and so understandably look at that and go, how did we get there? How? In the, in, what is the compass that the human species is working towards that we would get there? That we would be a species that is able to create such beauty in the world as we have seen and such terror and horror. And I think that, that there are a few different ways that we can speak to this. I mean, if you look, for instance, from the Buddhist cosmology, in the Buddhist cosmology, all of human suffering, all the origins, there's three origins, greed, hatred, and delusion. And that what we, if we take that and extrapolate that to what we're seeing on the planet right now, we're seeing systemic forms of those sources of suffering, systemic greed, systemic, systemic greed in the form of late-stage capitalism that doesn't serve everyone, um, systemic 
hatred in the form of the industrial war machine and systemic delusion, media, you know, all the different ways that we're that we're trying to be convinced to be smaller or lesser than we actually can be. And I think that one of the things that seems to set humans apart in the realm of the animal kingdom is self-reflective consciousness, which basically gives us the capability to think about ourselves doing something or not. And what that gives us is a capacity for choice. And we didn't necessarily show up on this planet with a perfect moral compass to have that capacity. And I think a lot of sometimes what we see is um, the evolutionary path that isn't uh, perfect in its origin. Plenty of species make mistakes on their way. And I think that our capacity for cho to choose is both can be something beautiful that we perform in the world. And unfortunately, consciousness can also lead to awful things happening in the world. And to not talk about it doesn't mean it goes away. And to talk about it can help sharpen our moral compass in a way that's important for the future of all life. And I think that's why the work that I do, which I, you know, one of the ways that I see it is helping us be able to strengthen in the face of suffering rather than having to turn away and leave those who are suffering alone in it. Part of why that's important is to not leave people alone in their suffering and part of it is to be able to acknowledge and know the suffering so we know with sharpness and accuracy the medicine to apply and to let it inform and change us to be better. Because well, that seems to be what we're here at work doing. Well, I'd like to think so. But, I, you know, this goes back to kind of the wisdom of roots, American Roots music uh, in that it really does capture that suffering. Uh, and it and and there is that structural wisdom in in some of the early roots American music that that me as a player as well that plays right. I play upright bass and then that's important for me to be able to play music that really captures or encapsulates that that wisdom that that focuses on that suffering because a lot of the beauty of the music is also music that uh, was written out of suffering as well. Yeah, I mean, the thing about, for instance. Um, what happened in the black community in the United States is that um, they could have stopped singing. I wouldn't blame them. Right. I mean, what was happening, the, there was so much force coming down on that community to oppress, and there still is a lot. And the turning point between giving up and moving on is seems to be a place where you know that that choice to not give up for whatever myriad of reasons the beauty that is born from that the gifts that are given and handed forward to future generations in the form of music or sermon or whatever wherever it might come out seem to be profoundly um like we can relate to them, you know, and 
they do feel like profound gifts to me of like whatever that was that kept the community going for the sake of life that is invaluable when it comes to trying to just stay in the game these days and not give up for whatever variety of reasons we could have to give up on life, the species, our families, our communities, you know, just give up. Why should I care? Look at the terror in the world. I don't want to face it, you know? I don't think that that's weak. I think that's understandable. But I also think that doesn't have to be the period at the end of the sentence. And we've seen that humans have capacity to keep going. How can we try and foster the needs and the ingredients and community to help everyone keep going? Because Lord knows we're in a precarious moment in a variety of ways. Especially with the environment. In the human story. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. We are. Yeah. If you're tuned in, you are listening to Health is a Human Right on 102.3 WHIV. It's really an honor and pleasure to meet one of my new favorite people of all time. <laughs> uh, that's Lydia Violet. Uh, and uh, she is. Uh, she has a show tonight at the Hi-Ho Lounge. Hi, folks at the Hi-Ho Lounge, yes. if you're listening. Uh, she'll be hitting the stage at 10 o'clock uh, tonight. Uh, and we've been talking to uh, Lydia uh, about some, I, I think, what are some of the underpinnings, if I can speak on your behalf, of yeah. maybe your musical career uh, and kind of what what inspires you to be a musician. I mean, at least that's kind of what I am, 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 am feeling. Uh, and, and, and let me take this as an opportunity because we have a few more minutes left to kind of, you can find more information about Lydia at LydiaFiddle.com, but I really want to move into the music and medicine work that you do. And, and more information there can be found at musicinmedicine.org. Music as medicine. Music, I'm sorry, music, music as, as medicine. Project.org. Yeah. Oh, wow, you I just, really got no, that. No, it's all I'm good. So just Google music as medicine project and you'll find all the things. So, because it seems like you're tying together multiple, like, uh, so the yeah. things that you were just talking about, boy, I think those thoughts all the time, right? <laughs> so, uh, and it seems like what you're doing now is you're tying, you know, you're tying it together. For me, it was raising this radio station out of nowhere was to try to create voices for uh, individuals that otherwise have never had voices on in, in media, you know? And so we have a few more minutes left, please. I'm going to shut up and I'm going to let you talk (laughs) about music as, as medicine uh, project and more information. There's music as medicine project.org. I'm going to shut up. Go ahead. No, it's all good. I mean, that's basically, you know, I think there's probably a few different ways that I can also describe what music as medicine does. I just try to create pockets where pockets in space and time where we can foster a sense of nourishment and resilience and find our place in the like ecosystem of healing that's cropping up on the planet because that's what I want to embolden. If we're going to make it out of this moment, it's going to be because the ecosystems of healing that cropped up on the planet are stronger than the ecosystems of suffering. I, I, man, and I'm an atheist, but from your lips to God's ears, really, like, (laughs) and I'm a hardcore atheist, but boy, do I, yes, 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 and yes, amen, I 100%, I I think the same thoughts that you do. Yeah, I mean, no matter what your orientation to explaining the mystery, we can see that that's the moment that we're in in our world, and so... I think Joanna Macy's work just speaks to that so poignantly 
through, you know, her teachings and this group work that we do. So part of what Music is Medicine is, is workshops and classes that happen everywhere from music festivals to schools. There's an online school um, that you can take classes on. And then combining that sometimes with exploring music for community resilience. You know, we uh, partner back home with the Black Banjo Reclamation Project to strengthen and make sure that the lineage of Black Banjo is acknowledged and able to be rooted in that community um, more and more. Um, I, you know, try to understand Iranian music and why that when I sing it as an Iranian American person, why I feel more whole, you know? And so that's why I teach a class called singing the bones where I support people in learning myths from their lineages and songs from their lineages. And for me, so important folk and roots music is like a big resource of resilience. And I think can be a place of a lot of healing if we let it. Yeah. It's really, I, I, I know you're here for a little while, so I, I'm already just going to be inviting you back multiple times <laughs> uh, back uh, here. Uh, you can find more information about Lydia at Lydia Violet. Uh, this is Lydia Violet. Uh, more information about Lydia can be found at LydiaFiddle.com. And then her music as medicine can be found at musicasmedicineproject.org. She's playing tonight at the Hi-Ho. And Scott, if you want to also give me more dates that you guys are playing, um, I'd be happy to also yeah, plug Scott- those. Scott just reminded me we have a whole music as medicine day long happening next Sunday oh. in Kiln, Mississippi. Oh, cool. At La Terre Sanctuary. So if you go to musicasmedicineproject.org, you'll find all that info. Good. And I'm going to hook you up with a couple more folks while you're here. Um, let me also just say uh, that, uh, and thank you again, Lydia. Um, this past week, uh, the New Orleans community suffered a huge loss. Uh, our very good friend and, and somebody who inspired many people died at a very young age. So I love you making more. Um, and I rest in, rest in power, Reagan. Whoops. Hang on a second. I hate, uh, I had such a good moment there and then I played the wrong song. Here we go. This is social distortion story of my life. I love you, Bacon.
Let's go. This is 102.3, and we are about to get started. 